As many of you know, we have two children, two girls, and we also have grandparents in town. Yay for grandparents in town. We love that. And a couple years ago, Mike and I had gone on a trip. I don't even remember where we, we went, but the girls stayed with the grandparents, and we came back, and we had all the usual conversations. How did things go? Oh, we had so much fun at Grandma and Pops' house, and, and asking them questions, and and, uh, and, and it w- went really well. And then a couple days later, um, I realized, oh, we had a conflict in scheduling, and I needed uh, someone else to pick up the kids from school. And so I talked to the grandparents, and they were willing to come pick up the kids. And so as I was conveying that information to the kids, and there's a couple years ago, so they're preteens, Rachel's eyes get real big. She gets real excited, and she looks at Alyssa, and she says, Let's see if we can get them to take us to the dump. (laughs) And I'm listening into this conversation, and I have no clue what's going on. I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and, And Rachel's like, oh, nothing, you know, Pops, he likes to take us to the dump. And I'm like, why would he take you to the dump, and why would you be excited about it? I'm thinking, oh, maybe he had some trash he needed to haul or something like that. And, uh, and Rachel gets all giggly again, and she's like, well, you know what? We have moldy goldfish and squid guts on toast, and it's awesome. And I'm like, what are you talking about, child? And they were not forthcoming. It was like this super fun secret. Eventually, I figured out, or they told me, that going to the dump was code for going to get frozen yogurt. And the squid guts and moldy goldfish were all the toppings that they put on the frozen yogurt. But have you ever experienced a conversation, and that's a a silly example, but a conversation where you're talking to someone and you're just not on the same page. You're you're talking about a topic, but you're, you're thinking of something completely different. Today we're looking at a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and and Nicodemus is going to struggle to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus' purpose is. Before we dive into the text, let's back up just a little bit and understand the series that we're in. We're reading the Gospel of John. John, one of the apostles of Jesus, uh, writes for us, um, for the first century Jewish and Gentile believers, and now 2,000 years later, for us, an account of who Jesus is. He says at the end of his gospel, precisely why he wrote it. He says, I wrote it so that you might believe and have life in Jesus. So we are on this pursuit as we read John's gospel about Jesus uh, to explore uh, what would belief in Jesus look like and what is this life that's offered in him. Today, Jesus has uh, a poignant and confusing conversation with a man named Nicodemus. We're in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you do, the signs you are doing, if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What a unique and interesting conversation between Nicodemus and um, Jesus. So who, who is this guy, Nicodemus? He, we were told that he's a Pharisee. So he's a part of this elite Jewish religious group. He's highly educated and devoted to following the Mosaic law. And they're, they're very strict in their practices. So we know that Nicodemus is a person of power and a person of privilege. He has an influential voice and a place in society. He's a part of the Jewish ruling council. And, and this is right after we read this story, at least in, in the way that John is told. This is right after we read the story of the clearing of the temple. And as you can imagine, um, the, the Pharisees were the ruling council or, or part of it. And so they were the ones who would be pretty offended by such actions and others that Jesus took pointing out where they were, they were lacking. And so we know that um, he's a part of this this group, the Pharisees, and we also know that at, there's several of them, at least in part, that he's representing because he says we. So it's him, and there's at least a few others that he's representing, and um, and so we we read about Nicodemus's conversation here, and we there's two other instances where Nicodemus is mentioned in the book of John. Um, in chapter 7, Nicodemus questions um, whether the Pharisees should condemn Jesus before hearing him, before putting him on trial, before hearing what he has to say. And then in chapter 19, Nicodemus is the one who pays for the spices that they use to wrap Jesus's body in for his burial. And so we don't know much about him, but but there's some interesting details there. And in this story, he comes at night. So likely he wanted to have a private conversation with Jesus. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It's curious that he shows up in the night. It's likely that he's, uh, it's a little bit of a covert mission. Now, is he covering up his actions before the other Pharisees, right? Is he kind of one who believes more deeply in Jesus and wants to have a face-to-face with him? That's very possible. Or is he there on behalf of the Pharisees saying, you're trashing our temple, you're doing all these things, and yet he acknowledges Jesus in a significant way. But we see the signs that you're doing. Clearly, 
You have a special measure of God in your life. Um, so we see Nicodemus address Jesus with two titles. One is rabbi and the other is teacher. Now, rabbis were highly revered in Israelite society. Uh, they were the top of the educational system. Uh, if by chance you were one of the elites that made it all the way through the top of the education system in Israel, uh, the next task would be to apply to a rabbi that for the next three or so years, you you might follow that rabbi, listen, learn what the rabbi taught, and do the things the rabbi did. And so this, uh, this man, Nicodemus, acknowledges Jesus as a rabbi, someone who is leading other disciples uh, in, in their pursuit of knowing more of God. Secondly, he refers to Jesus as a teacher. Uh, again, a fairly revered term. Jesus uh, is, is uh, being acknowledged as someone significant. And yet, notice he comes up short of, uh, of naming Jesus either a prophet or the Messiah, right? And I think it reveals to us uh, the predicament of the Pharisees, right? Uh, and, and certainly the predicament of this man, Nicodemus, that they know Jesus is someone special. The signs prove that he is someone here from God, and yet he is entirely disruptive, in the nation of Israel and the practices of the temple and those of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so as Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we know you're someone special, Jesus just dives right in. He dives into the deep end. His response has nothing to do with the prompt. At least what we're told, you mm-hmm. know, because this is likely a summary of that conversation. We don't have every single, every single word said. But Jesus just goes straight to the heart of the matter, and he says that no one can see or enter into the kingdom of God unless they're born again. That you can't see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And there's some interesting word plays in here that often get lost in translation. This term born again, the word again is actually anothen, and it has a in the Greek, yes, thank you. And it um, has a dual meaning. And it's it's interesting because both those meanings could apply here in um in this conversation. So first of all, it can mean again, like a new to, to start over. So to be born again would be to have a new beginning, to start over a new life. Now a, that same word can also mean from above, from God, from heaven. So it's so interesting here. Jesus is saying you must be born again. Uh, you must to be a part of the kingdom of God. You need a whole new start, a whole new life. And this life is going to be a gift from God. It is one that comes from heaven. Mm-hmm. So uh, the conversation continues. Jesus says you need to be born again from above right? And uh, Nicodemus replies to him, how in the world would I enter again into my mother's womb? A very awkward uh, statement. And we'll just pass right beyond it. That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, <laughs> and Jesus jumps in uh, to, to give another description of this idea of born again or born um, from above. He says, you must be born of water and spirit. 
Now, a fairly simple but accurate reading of this would apply to the Christian practice of baptism, which develops. Uh, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. Eventually, it'll become central in the church, uh, in the first century church, and we continue to practice water baptism today. That is, it's this ceremonial uh, cleansing, right? Uh, dipped under the water. In fact, in Romans 8, it's, uh, it's um, likened to uh, a parallel is drawn between Jesus who is buried and rose again, and we who go under the waters of baptism and rise to new life, right? So so naturally, he says, you'll need to be born of water, uh, and we would think in the Christian church of baptism, and secondly, born of the Spirit. This is that we would be bathed in the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would dwell inside of us. But in the context of what's happening right here, think back now a a couple thousand years, Jesus speaking to a Pharisee. There's more going on than just that reading that we would we would think in this moment. Understand though though Nicodemus sounds kind of dumb in this text, and a lot of people that are having conversations with Jesus in these gospel accounts sound kind of ignorant. He is not an ignorant man. He is the top of Israel's minds, right? He is a brilliant man who is one of the very few that could make it through the educational system to become a Pharisee. And and Jesus is saying, now you are a teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. Uh, so he speaks of the water and the spirit. As a Pharisee, um, Nicodemus would be very familiar with the prophets. In fact, he has memorized all of the Old Testament scriptures. And every time in the Old Testament, water and the spirit are mentioned, it's a metaphor for cleansing. Let me give you just two quick examples, and we'll move beyond this point. But Isaiah 44, uh, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, for I will pour water on the thirsty land, and to streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees of flowing streams, uh, by flowing streams. So you see here this idea of water and spirit and new life, new, new growth. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from, uh, uh, yes, I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Again, water and spirit represent this new life, this cleansing and a new opportunity. So Jesus is calling Nicodemus to this realization. Uh, To see or to know the kingdom of God, you will need a new start, a new beginning from above. And the water and spirit represents this idea of cleansing and new life being found. And he continues to talk about the spirit in verse eight. The wind blows where it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Again, this is super poetic, and sometimes that gets lost in translation. The the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, pneuma, and it it can be translated the spirit of a person or the breath of a person or wind like the breeze. And so this spirit blows wherever it pleases. And the spirit of God, the breath of God, the life of God blows life into humanity. And the spirit of God is a source for new life in us. The spirit gives birth 
to spirit here. And, and there's a complete transformation of one's life. And that's the born again, the, the new start, a new life, a recreation, a re, being re, um, anaminated. I can't say the word now. Animated, yes, by by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God in us makes us alive. Um, And I also like this, the image of, since I'm kind of, Micah can attest to this, I'm a little bit of a control freak. Um, uh, I like this image here of the wind blowing and we can't, we can't control it. The Spirit does the Spirit's thing, and we can't control it. We can't be born again in and of ourselves. Rather, it's a work of the Spirit in us, that by the grace of God, that there's this new life. I just want to tell stories about that control freak um, Uh, comment there. But I'm not going to, because we don't have time. You're so nice. (laughs) So Jesus alludes to one of the strangest stories in the Old Testament next. Uh, He alludes to a story in Numbers 21, and what he's saying to Moses is, or not about Moses, what he's saying to Nicodemus is, you are sick, and you need to be healed, okay? He refers to this story, and I'll very briefly go through it, but go read Numbers 21. It's a fascinating story. Um, uh, Israel, again, is rebelling against God, uh, so all these snakes show up and start biting the people, and they're getting sick, and they're dying. And so Moses prays to God. He then builds this big bronze snake and puts it high up on a pole. And anyone that looked up at the snake would then be healed. And Jesus is drawing an illustration or drawing a parallel. He's saying, I am like that snake. Look to me and find life. Just like they looked to the snake in the desert, looked to Jesus here. And so there's this comparison and this juxtaposition here, this idea of being lifted up, of being exalted. Well, Jesus's exaltation is the cross. It's execution. Um, and, and in that, Jesus absorbs the, the, the effects and consequences of humanity's sin and evil in himself. And by his death, Jesus then offers eternal life. Jesus offers new life. And all we have to do, all they had to do, humanity, is to look to Jesus and to be healed, to be made whole, and to receive this eternal life. So Jesus has this interaction with a man named Nicodemus who comes like, who are you really? I can tell something special is happening here, but who are you really? And maybe Nicodemus is even kind of a believer, like he wants to be on the side of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't do much with that conversation. Instead, he points out to Nicodemus, using the Old Testament scriptures, uh, he points out to Nicodemus, you need a new life. And that's crazy. The elite of Israel, Jesus is speaking with, and he's like, you just got to start all over because you got nothing, right? You need a new life. And so then John, again, the author of this gospel account that we're reading, tacks on on the backside of this conversation with Nicodemus, his summary of what's being played out in this story, in this conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And he uh, pins one of the most memorable verses in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Did you know this came right on the backside of the story of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? It's fascinating to consider. This conversation that's convoluted and strange, but Jesus is pointing to the fact that I am the one that brings new life and cleansing in this world. And then John writes this summary. I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 16 through 21. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what uh, they have done has been done in the sight of God. So the author's conclusion, uh, commentary on this on this conversation is that God so loved the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that Jesus would save the world. And it teaches us so much about the character of God and about God's motivation. Like, why would God do this? And motivation really matters. And Micah and I have been, um, it's been our practice for the last few years to take uh, Sabbath days. And so we, we live very full, busy lives. And so a couple times a month, we encourage each other to, to take a day away from home for 24 hours and and so we go and we spend time resting and praying and, and, and rejuvenating. Um, and often when it's my turn to go on Sabbath, uh, I kind of hem and haw about it. And I was like, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure we have time. I have time. I'm not sure I want to go. And Micah's so good about encouraging me to leave, encouraging me to go. And I, I so appreciate that because of his motivation and his motivation in that really matters. Like if he, if he was just annoyed with me and he was like, Hey, you need to, you need to leave for a day. That'd be very different than, uh, but rather he's, he's encouraging me to take the time that I need to rest and to pray. I'm sure. I love the way you interpret me pushing you out the door. (laughs) I, you know, we've been married 20 years. I'm sure he's never been annoyed with me ever (laughs) and vice versa. Um, but the motivation there matters, that, that it is done in love. And God, uh, John here tells us God's motivation, this agape love, this self-giving love that looks out for the well-being and the interest of the other, God's relationship with humanity, and God coming, um, in, being incarnated in Jesus, that is motivated by his love. God gave his only son. Uh, there's, for some of us, a real hang-up in the barbaric nature of blood sacrifices, of the idea of giving his son that he would die on a cross. So for some of us, that's a hang-up, and I'm only going to mention it briefly today. But let me describe it in these terms. Um, the idea of a sacrificial system is not unique to Israel is not unique to Judaism. Um, what I perceive in the story of God's work in Israel um, is that a sacrificial system was understood uh, amongst nations and religions of the world, the idea that there would have to be some sort of atonement, some sort of consequence paid elsewhere for whatever has happened. God is working within that understanding and system. 
So, so though the idea of a sacrificial system is not unique to Israel, what is very unique about the Christian message, the gospel, the good news, is a God who would be willing to pay the price for the sake of humanity. There's no other religion or story in the world that describes a God who so loved the world that he would pay the cost, bear the weight in and of himself for the sins, for the iniquities, for the shortcomings of his creation. So let me just say this about this idea that Jesus sent into the world to die. Yes, it's tragic and it's horrible. We should lament it and and be pained by it. And we should also acknowledge the beautiful, beautiful idea of a God that loves you, us, so deeply that he would bear the consequences in and of himself. And in bearing those consequences, the promise is eternal life. That whoever believes in Jesus would have eternal life. In John 17, 3, John will, will go to define eternal life. He says, this, now this is eternal life that they know you, um, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God, to experience God, to live life with God. And so eternal life is something that we can experience in the here and now by walking with God, by knowing God, by experiencing God here in his kingdom here. Jesus, as he walked on earth, um, showed us what eternal life looks like. He, he healed people and made people hold. He, he practiced radical inclusion into the kingdom of God and showed people what it looked like to love God and to love people. And so we get to experience that. We're invited to experience eternal life in the here and now through the Holy Spirit as we are healed, as we are made whole, as we are included and loved and then called to be ambassadors for Jesus, to participate in that mission of healing and inclusion and love. And then also, after death, after our physical death, we, we are invited to experience eternal life. On the cross, Jesus said to the thief, truly, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me. And then later on in, in Revelations, John will describe um, the end goal, what will happen at the end of the description of a new heaven and a new earth, God dwelling with humanity and there being no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears and everything made new. And so this promise of eternal life is here and now and for all eternity. Now, remember, John is writing that we might believe. So he uses here the story of Nicodemus to describe both belief and unbelief. Um, If you believe, there's no condemnation. And yet, he says, if you don't believe, you stand condemned. Now, we put a lot on this statement, I think, that uh, that's not intended in it. It doesn't say that you're going to burn in a fiery pit of hell for the rest of your life. What it does say is a man like Nicodemus, who stands in front of the author of life, who is inviting him into God's presence, who chooses not to believe, who chooses not to to accept Jesus for who he is, stands condemned. Understand, Nicodemus is standing in front of Jesus 
invited to new life, and yet he is not choosing it. And so John describes uh, this, this remarkable and tragic reality that he is not finding life in Jesus, right? He stands in front of the author of life and is not choosing to accept the life offered to him. Jesus, the light of the world. If you remember back in John 1, the light of the world came to make God known. And I like this because the image will con- will continue here with light and darkness, but that Jesus is the light of the world to help us see who God is, to help us know God, to live with God and follow God. This light illuminates and enables us to see, to know and experience God. And the inverse of light, of course, is darkness. And we know to be afraid of darkness generally, right? Every scary movie, the things happen in the dark and something jumps out, right? We know to be afraid of the dark. In fact, last night, uh, I'm walking to bed and we have this bed frame with very sharp corners on it. And Sarah had had already turned the lights out and, and usually I turn a flashlight on, but I didn't want to disturb her. So walking into bed, I smashed just the center of my kneecap straight into the corner of the bed. Talk about disturbing. Uh, I disturbed her at that point. I, you know, I crumpled down onto the bed and I sat there trying to catch my breath, which is interesting. Did you know you can knock the breath out of yourself by hitting your knee? I didn't know that was a thing. It's a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge. But it happened to me. I thought those were separate systems previously. Um, we know to be afraid of the dark. You turn on a light when you're in the dark. And what's fascinating is the way John describes light and darkness here is he says, but they loved the dark. Why in the world would you love the dark? We know to be afraid of the dark. It's because in the dark you can conceal so much. It describes humanity who's so in love with their pleasure and their sinful, selfish ways that they would choose darkness to cover up who they really are and what they're really doing. And I say they, but I should be saying I and we right? We want to cover those things up. We do not want to be seen. And that's what John is describing here, an invitation into Jesus' light. And he says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. This The application of this metaphor then is the opposite of doing evil in the dark, in secret, would be to live by God's truth in the light, to live openly, to be transparent, to be able to to see God and what God is doing and, and to live in God's way. It's a call to let the light of Jesus illuminate our way and our path. If we're honest, that's a scary invitation to step into the light, to be seen and to be known. And yet it's a beautiful one because it's all predicated by the idea of a God that loved us so much that he would give himself for our sake. A God that loves so much that he has paid the price and invited us to walk into his beautiful light and live new life in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone who would believe in him would have eternal life. We are invited, friends, to new life. And it's not something far off after this life. Here and now, You are invited to walk in the light and the love of God. We are invited to walk in the life, to be seen and to be known as the loved children of God. We're invited to walk in the light, 
to be seen and known as those clothed in Jesus Christ. We are invited to put off all that shame as we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus has paid the price that we might walk in the light. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God of love, that you, your love, Lord, is so vast and deep and wide that is hard for us to even understand. But Lord, we thank you that you are love and that you are inviting us to know you, inviting us to experience you and to live out your love, to be so filled and, and transformed by your love that what we do and say just flows out of that. Lord, teach us how to receive your love. And Lord, teach us how to be um, instruments of your love in our families, at work, um, in our community, Lord. That we would be known as people who love you and love others. Lord, we ask you to do the work in us that only you can do. (laughs) This transforming work that the Spirit, your Spirit, does in us. Lord, we open ourselves up to you, and we say yes. And Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for inviting us on this journey. Thank you for um, that warm embrace that that you give us um, at the very beginning, Lord, and also every single time we fail, every single time we fall and we come back to you. Your, your love just um, embraces us. And so, Lord, we say thank you and ask you that you would continue to teach us what it looks like in our lives to walk in your love and to be um, instruments of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, friends, thank you for joining us today. With that, we will conclude. I'll remind you there's coffee, cookies, and an invitation to stick around and have conversation. Pray that you have a blessed week and can't wait to see you again soon.